Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. We have been traveling through the Gospel of Luke, trying to kind of understand what the writer Luke is, is, is showing us. We've seen several different themes unfold. One of the latest ones has been, coming off of Luke chapter 9, has been that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, the reason that's important to us is because if he doesn't get to Jerusalem, we don't get to go to church on Sunday. Because that's where he's going to lose his life and then consequently resurrect from the dead and thus the church is born. So he is on his way to Jerusalem. There's a couple other themes. Prayer is big uh, to Luke. He mentions it several times. There's also the theme of marginalized people. Gentiles, Samaritans, women, Roman soldiers, lepers, all the people who are, who are marginalized. And Luke is pointing to them, saying, did you notice Jesus doesn't forget these people? Which the application to us is simple. Neither should we. Neither should we forget the people who are marginalized and off to the side. Then we get to Luke chapter 11, and it gets pretty thick. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't know if we were going to get out of Luke chapter 11. Um, I thought, this is like, was it like 13 weeks in a row in Luke chapter 11? Like that's... And we left Luke chapter 11, and Luke chapter 11, at the very end, if you remember, there was a dinner party some Pharisees, and they, they invited Jesus in. They're trying to get a good look at him. He's the new guy in town. He's this new rabbi, and he's kind of unorthodox, and we don't really know what to think of him. And so the traditional side is kind of like, would he fit with us? Would he fit? The other group, the Sadducees, this group, they're kind of like, you know, might make, might make a, good, a good lever. If we had him, we could... We could use him to kind of leverage some stuff. Let's see where he lines up. Maybe he'll shut down this other side. Jesus, by the time the the party is over, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are now on the same team. They didn't like each other before the dinner party. But they leave that deal after dealing with Jesus, and then nobody is friends. Like, they're looking at Jesus like, you know what? I will be your friend if we can do something about him. Luke chapter 11, the very end. says this when Jesus left there the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions waiting to catch him in something he might say waiting to catch him the word is hunt I don't know if you know this or not but if somebody is thinking to themselves you know what I would really like to find something wrong with them it's probably not long till they just make it up right Like, if they ever get in a place where somebody's looking at you like, you know, I'd love to find out something bad about you. You know what? Why find something out? You know what I heard about you? We'll just make it up. And now this is what Jesus has done. He has become public enemy number one. He's at odds with Rome. He's at odds with the establishment, the religious establishment. The people have turned on him. His own people have turned on him. And it's just Jesus. And he has his disciples. And he has this flighty crew that hangs around in the thousands. And they follow him around. But they want 
from him. Maybe some of them are sincere, but they want from him. And we get to Luke chapter 11. Meanwhile, shortly after this dinner party, maybe even still at the dinner party, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, this word is myriad, many thousands, myriad. 10,000 is the word. When 10,000, what's the population of uh, Allen County? Anybody know? No? 5,000 in Iola. 12? So the whole county is following Jesus around. You know what happens when something like that goes on? Somebody has the power to pull 12,000 people and just walk them through? That's a dangerous person because you know what that looks a lot like? An army. That looks a lot like an army. Part of the concern is they might revolt. There's these 10,000. So get this picture. 10,000 people huddled around Jesus, all of them screaming, yelling. I tried to get through Bible Estate yesterday. I tried to drive through Humboldt yesterday. Do you know how many blocks you got to drive to stop from getting jammed up in traffic on Bible Esta? Like this parade, what, last till two? I couldn't get around. People everywhere. And here comes Jesus with at least 10,000 following him around. And he's got his 12 right there. They're all yelling for him. They're all trying to get a piece of Jesus. Jesus, can you fix this? Jesus, can you fix that? Jesus, can you do this? Jesus, can you do that? But something else is going on. See, the tide is about to turn. Jesus has just made himself public enemy number one. And so now these, these disciples, the future of the church and this movement, are right here in this little circle. Listen to what Luke writes. This is so cool. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. First to his disciples. I, guys, I know you can't hear. Scoot in. I know you can't hear. Scoot in. So they scoot in. Jesus says, listen close. This is important. Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay. Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I think hypocrisy... Uh, as more of a private sin. I don't think about it like I need to warn you, be aware of people who are hypocrites. That's kind of a common sense thing to me, at least, right? What is, the, what is Jesus getting at with be on guard in this moment with 10,000 people, this moment to his disciples first, be on guard again. You know what would make more sense? They're going to try to kill me in a couple of months. And they're probably going to come for you next. Or this one. Be careful that you are not a hypocrite. Okay. It's also interesting the baking term that he brings in too, doesn't it? Isn't it? Yeast, a little bit of leaven, goes a long ways, doesn't it? A little bit of hypocrisy, 
goes a long ways. Get more miles per gallon off of hypocrisy than fuel. You can. A little bit goes a long ways. And what Jesus is saying is this. Hypocrisy is a community problem, not a personal problem. What did the, what did the disciples have to model their ministry off of? Only the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a respected group, no matter if they were hypocritical. They were the religious establishment. So what are they going to do when Jesus takes this ministry? He's gone. He hands it over to them and he says, now you go out into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. When he does this, what are they supposed to model this after? So do it like the Pharisees. That's the closest thing we got. And Jesus says, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That means this. That these disciples are scared. A moment is coming when their leader is going to be gone. And they're going to have to figure this thing out. And Jesus is saying, rule number one, here's the thing you have to guard your heart against most. Hypocrisy. Because the the trickle down of, of hypocrisy will just break a group in half. Hypocrisy. It's a community problem. Let me read you a couple of things. It's interesting, this word hypocrisy. It is the word actor. Someone who puts on a mask. My wife was telling me that she was watching a TV show uh, or, a, or a, a video the other day of, I don't know if you know who these people are, Donnie Wahlberg and Jenny McCarthy. Okay, so Donnie Wahlberg is on a television show called Blue Bloods. Familiar with this? And in the show, his wife dies, and Jenny McCarthy is watching the show, crying that Donnie Wahlberg had lost his his wife in the show, and she's crying about an actress who is portraying a part, and is convincing. And poor Jenny McCarthy is just like, you should look this up. It's great. And she's just sobbing. Donnie Wahlberg says to her. Why are you crying? She says, you lost your, you lost your wife. You, you're my wife, but you're your other wife, your fake wife. You lost your... <laughs> the problem with hypocrisy is this, is it's convincing. That's the biggest problem with hypocrisy, is that it's convincing. Now, for these guys, it's going to be a little bit different application than it is for us. For them, this is the application. I know what the religious movement has looked like. In, in, in Judaism. All through Israel, I know what the religious system has looked like. And I want it to be different. And Jesus is saying, the disciples saying to the disciples, it is not enough to act this way only in public. You must live this way and it must be in every fiber of your being. You have to operate day in, day out, every single second in the spirit. This is the call. No hypocrisy. Because that's what the Pharisees did was they lived out their righteous acts in front of people, but privately, they didn't care. But the application for us is different. See, here's the problem. Have you ever looked at somebody and thought to yourself, man, they got it together. Man, they have just got it together. They're both beautiful. They both got great jobs. Everything must be perfect at home. And then, and then everybody says the same thing. It's always a surprise, isn't it? 
Oh my gosh, I never saw it coming. Come on, really? You mean to tell me that you look at a situation sometimes and you don't think to yourself like, I think that's too good to be true. See, the problem with hypocrisy is it's convincing. And see, when you take it to a personal level, here's what happens. If you ever think to yourself, man, I hope someday I get it together and that spiritually I have the same kind of heart as Jared. You need a different Christmas list. You need a completely different Christmas list. Yeah, but Jared, you really seem to get it together. Jared does seem that way sometimes. But you should come and hang out through the week. I mean, this 30 minutes right here on Sunday, I mean, this is helpful and this is good and this is great for us. You should swing by on a Wednesday. Or try to catch me on a Monday morning when I'm out of bed trying not to swear, you know? Because this is what happens. What happens is, is when we get in a place to where we do not want anybody to see the real us, it becomes hypocrisy. Here's one of the problems with hypocrisy. There are many, but I will name four. Here's one of the main problems is that your hypocrisy throws up a false fabricated standard that other people are then shamed by as they try to live up to what you are displaying. Make sense? You put on like life is good. Hey, how's work? Oh, man, it's awesome. Knocking it out of the park, killing it, doing great. Everybody's happy with me. But you know good and well that's not true. You know that's not true. So how's your marriage? You know, you know, it's, we're, we're, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're, uh, good to see you. So how are you doing? You know, that thing on the street? What's up? What's up? How you doing? Awesome. Living the dream. Awesome. I'm doing good. Or this one, this is my favorite. Busy. Dude, so busy. Because busy equals important. Busy. Dude, so busy. But how are you really doing? Ah. Ah, not good. Not good. So how's things at home? Ah, pretty, 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 pretty. Okay, I'm done lying. It's terrible. If I had the money, I'd throw her out. This is real though, right? Like if we decided we were just going to be very honest, this is where we land. We get into a place to where our hypocrisy holds us back. Here's one of the first problems with it is that it shames other people. Your fabricated pretend life shames other people. Here's the second problem. If you can't cough up what's wrong with you on the inside and the problems you're having and dime your husband out or dime your wife out, you don't give anybody else an opportunity to serve God and help put you back together. And people need that. There's people who need to be in your corner, who want to serve, who want to help, who are praying, God, what is my call? What is my ministry? What do you want me to do? But the people around them just keep pretending. We just keep acting like everything is okay. You see, then God isn't at work in our life. Here's the third thing that's wrong with it, is that when we teach other people, that's how you really live. And our kids grow up and they go like this. Mom never talked to anybody about her problems. She just went in the bedroom and cried and drank a lot. <laughs> Dad didn't. He just went in the shop. And sometimes he drank a lot too. So apparently, 
The way you deal with problems is not talk about it and drink a lot. And this is what we do. We perpetuate a cycle. And we teach others the same thing. The biggest problem is that if you cannot grab a hold of the sin and the secrecy and the hypocrisy that's in your own heart and put it out there, you miss grace. You see, salvation is offered to everyone. It's offered to everyone. But do you know how you get it? By saying, I need it. But if you don't need it, then you can't get it. We miss grace. We miss this opportunity to experience God full flavor right in front of us. We miss the opportunity. He can't work in our heart when we're standing there going, no, it's good. And God's like, how are you really doing? You're like, busy. Busy. How's work really going? You would know, you know, you know? How's your marriage really doing? Mm. You know, God, thankful, thankful that you gave her to me. We miss grace. You see, but let me, let, me, let me take this just a step further. Do you know why we feel like we have to lie and be hypocritical about what's really going on in our life? Do you know why we really do that? Because for some odd reason, and I don't know why, but for some odd reason, we get this idea that there's a standard in life this imaginary standard created by imaginary people that all of us are supposed to imaginarily, is that a word? No. We're supposed to already understand this is the standard. We should already all be living at this standard. Who made the standard? Where did it come from? Can you name the person? Can you write the standard out? Or is it just this weird guilt thing that says, you should be better than that, really. You should be better than that. Are you serious? You should be better than that. And you get sad or depressed, and it's like, really, you're going to be sad or depressed? Really? You're better than that. And so here comes this thing to where we offer ourselves no grace. You know what one of the biggest problems in the world is? Is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what we're doing here. In the great United States, we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, better than probably anybody. Because we love ourselves so poorly That's exactly how we love our neighbor. You don't care about you. You beat you up. You hold you down. You offer yourself no grace whatsoever. And all the while, everybody around you and God are standing over here going, yay, you're good, you're doing good, you're doing awesome. You're like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm losing. Look at everybody else. Everybody else is doing great. And we're not. And we miss it. And when we can't offer ourselves any grace, do you know what happens next? You can't offer anybody else any grace. Not your husband, not your kids, not your friends. Especially somebody outside of your circle of influence. You see, if you, do, if you don't find grace, if you miss grace, everybody around you misses grace. But then Jesus takes hypocrisy and he cuts it down one more level. And he says, so let's talk about the real problem with hypocrisy and it's this secrets Luke chapter 12 2 and 3 
There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. In essence, don't worry about all the back alley dealings of these Pharisees and Sadducees. I know their system is corrupt. I know it. And he tells his disciples, don't worry about what they got going on. I know what they've got going on. But let me tell you what's going to happen. There will be a day where I will lay their soul bare. I will carve it wide open and I will lay it out and everybody will see exactly what they are. But the same goes for you. How long can I hold on to this secret sin inside my life? I mean, I guess until Jesus decides he's going to let it out. I guess until he decides he's going to come show up in my life, carve me open and be like, I think it's about time we get rid of that. You know, like when my little girl comes in and she's like, oh, I got a splinter. And I say, oh, okay. And as soon as I touch the tweezers, the tweezers in the bathroom, in a different room, I touch the tweezers. She screams like, oh, oh, it hurts already. It hurts already? I got the tweezers. Oh, it's gone. Oh, oh, it already hurts. Really? And you show up and you're trying to hold on to this little bitty toe. And you're trying, like, you're going to make me stab you. And stop kicking, you know? And see, Jesus is going to show up and he's just going to lay it wide open. There are no secrets. It's interesting. I was reading this article just this morning. 1997. Tokyo Express, this big uh, uh, kind of a container, a big, big hauling ship was smashed by a great big wave and there were some barrels on board that were full of Legos. And I can't remember exactly how many Legos, but right around 6 million Legos in 1997. And it tipped over. Hey, they don't even know what was in all the other barrels. What they know is that there's Legos everywhere. Hey, people all over the world are finding these Legos. All over the world. Like, look it up. It's like the... Uh, just look it up. Lego spill of 1997. So you'll find it. It's hilarious. And there's like collectors all over the place. Somebody from Australia found some. This happened in like the UK or somewhere. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. All these Legos. And then the very bottom of the report, it comes down and the guy that's talking about it says this. Here's what I know. And I think it's just true across the board. Not everything will stay at the bottom of the ocean. Not everything stays at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus says, the biggest problem with hypocrisy, secrets. Our secrets are what make us sick. Our secrets are the thing that hold us down. The power of addiction is in our secrets. The power of our addiction is in our secrets. Watch this. If you say, okay, I'm going to be honest. Here's what I'm struggling with, and I'm going to tell somebody else. Watch how quickly you can move past this kind of thing. Watch the immediate release of power. It cannot hold on to you anymore because you've confessed it. Book of James says just the same thing. Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. That healing has something to do with confessing our sins? Yes, because when I say something, this is where I'm at. I'm stuck. Here's my secret. It unlocks the power. 
it breaks the chains on it. Because what we say is real. Jesus talks about it's the secrets. Here's another thing that we need to talk through. The secrets have everything to do with perception. You see, the reason I would keep a secret and I would not tell you what's going on inside of my life is because I need you to continue to see me through a very nice light. It's perception. And my fear is that if you saw me for what I really am, you might not come back. You might not talk to me when you see me on the street. You, you might write something mean about me on Facebook. That's not really my concern. That a lot of times our hypocrisy is buried in our secrets and our secrets are held there because of our fear. Our fear that other people will perceive us in a light that we don't want them to perceive us in. And Jesus says to his disciples, look, there's a thing that's coming down the line here. And I know you think this beautiful little movement, now that we've become public enemy number one, this beautiful little continuation of Judaism called Christianity, as it's just rolling all together. I know you think the wheels are about to fall right off, but it's not. This thing's going to be just fine. So I need you to not be scared. Can you see them? Knees knocking, teeth chattering, just wringing their hands like, we don't know how to preach a sermon. We don't know how to organize people. But Jesus is going to take this ministry and he's going to just hand it off to us and say, run with it. You got this. Seriously? Terrified. You would expect Jesus to look at him and be like, are you kidding me? You're scared right now? You're, you're scared? But you know what? Jesus isn't, you know, your dad or mine. Hey, ain't no reason to be scared. Okay, well, I feel better already. <laughs> no, I don't. Hey, Dad, I'm kind of scared. There's no reason to be scared. Oh, well, I feel better already. That doesn't work. It just really doesn't work. I mean, it's like if I say I'm hungry and you say, no, you're not. And I'm like, okay. I'm better now. We should do this more often. I have a smaller waistline. But it's not true. But Jesus doesn't step to him and be like, what are you scared for? Here's what he says. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Verse 5. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Time out. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. There's more? Between life insurance and funeral home services together makes a $21 billion industry for death. That's not including medicine, medical, uh, uh, medical appointments, medical procedures, supplements, all designed to do what? Keep us alive longer. Why? Because we don't think like Jesus thinks. We think like we think. And we think death is the end. And Jesus is like, don't be scared of somebody who comes by and, you know, kills your body. 
but I think that would probably hurt Jesus. And he's like, <laughs> like it's not a flat tire. You know what I mean? It's not like, don't be scared of somebody flattens your tires. Okay, don't be scared of them who can kill your body. Can you see the disciples like, that's on the table? Like this is a possibility now? It's a possibility now. Don't be scared of them who can do that. Rather, be scared of him who after the death of the body can take your soul and cast it to hell. <laughs> Did you see the disciples like, I wasn't ready for this. Today was a hard day for me. This was a hard day, Jesus. Like I'm feeling overwhelmed. Jesus just went to the deep end of the pool. But it's important because in a few months, he's going to end up on a cross. And they have to know the truth. And he says to them, don't be scared. But look at this. Did you notice he says, my friends, do not be afraid, my friends. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus had shared all his dreams with you? I have dreams. My list is shortened as I've gotten older and I stopped growing. The NBA left. <laughs> um, I'm no longer striving for the NBA, no more. It was off the, but I have other dreams. But you know what, here's the thing. Some of you know my other dreams. Some of you do. But some of you don't. Do you know why? Because dreams are private. Dreams are personal. I could say to you, here's my dream, and you could be like, are you serious? You'd be terrible at that. And then I could go home and be like, maybe I need to rethink that. No, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I went and I saw my guidance counselor when I was in high school. It was my turn. They brought me in. They were like, sit down with the guidance counselor. You can kind of map out your future. I'm like, I saw this lady... You know, 15 seconds every day my senior year, and I'd never, I didn't know who she was. I didn't know what she did. I'd never visited with her ever before. This prim and proper lady with this perfect hair, gray, kind of pushed up. Click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. Everywhere she went, you got to go see the guidance counselor. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go declare what I want to go be when I grow up. I'm going to go tell her. And I walk in, and I'm like, you know what? Here's the thing. I think I want to go into ministry. It's so wonderful. So wonderful. Like, okay, I'm trying it out. I don't really know how this is going to fit. I don't know how if I'm going to be okay at this. I kind of need some encouragement. That is so great. That is so wonderful. You're in church now? Yeah, I grew up in church. That's fantastic. That is so great, Jared. But what are you going to do for a real job? <laughs> Uh -huh. I didn't know I needed a different real job. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, it's kind of more of a thing you help out to do, you know? Is it? That's what it is. I didn't know. And I walked out with this kind of deflated feeling like, I didn't go like I thought it was going to go. Like, hmm. dreams, Jesus looks around and he says, there's no one I can't save. And all of us here secretly go like this. I know somebody. 
It's true, right? Jesus is like, I have hope for everyone. And you're like, eh, I have hope for some people. Some people aren't going to make the cut, Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but not going to make the cut. But Jesus has dreams, and he shared them. I came to save the world. Why don't we just focus on Israel, you know? He said, no, I came to save the world. All humanity for all generations. Okay. That Jesus, he's a go-getter. And he shared his dreams with us. No matter how crazy we think this is, he shared his dreams with us. That's why he calls us friends. This is why he says, look, friends, here's the thing. This is going to be a big movement. And he's not saying this is going to be a big movement. So if you got $5,000, let's push it together and let's see what we can make. No, it's not that. Jesus is saying, we're going to change the world. I just need you to buy in. Yeah, your business plan's a little shoddy. You started with sailors and tax collectors. Not getting a lot of votes right now. I know we got 10,000 people here, but they're going to be screaming a different song here in a few months. I don't know, Jesus. But he shared his dreams. What about you? You share yours? Have you shared yours with Jesus? Jesus, here's what I think I'd like to be someday. I can promise you this. He's not going to laugh at yours. He's not going to laugh at yours. That's why he calls his friends. Here's the next part. Jesus seems to believe, believe that there is something worse than death. So there's something worse? Yes, there's something much worse. You could lose your soul. See, Jesus has this understanding of death like it's different than us. He's like, so what? Death is the transition between this life and then the greater life. And we all go through hard things and we're all going to go through death. So let's just get comfortable with the idea. Like this is where we're headed. We're going to go through it. We're going to transition here and we're going to go on to the next place. Who's with me? And the disciples are like, can we back up a second? It's a lot. But his understanding is different. It's a heavenly perspective. His heavenly perspective is this. Listen, there is a worse thing that can happen. And that is to coast through this life full of hypocrisy and mediocrity and never arrive at the real life. You're taking the, the warm-up laps, but you're not planning on getting in the race? Why? This is where it gets good. We endure. We live in the kingdom here, but we're going there. Get on board. What is it? What's, what's the problem? Jesus' understanding of death is different. The Apostle Paul said it this way. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Wow. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says this, Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. If Jesus is my friend, and he's not scared of death, then I assume I don't have anything to be scared of either. The third thing that I like is this thing right here where Jesus is so cryptic. And this is almost like this revelatory bomb that almost goes unnoticed. And this is what he says. And if you listen, you can almost kind of hear it. 
Don't fear him who can kill your body. And then after that, do no more. And I'll show you who you should fear. That's a little intense. I'll show you who you will fear. Go with me to the grade school playground for just a moment. Picture me. I wasn't as tall as I am now. I'm a short guy. I get pushed down on the playground sometimes. I got a bad haircut, bad shoes, speech impediment. I got all kinds of things wrong with me, big, huge glasses. And kids want to push me down. And I look up one day, and I see that the biggest, scariest kid on the playground is sitting over there on the teeter-totter by himself. And now he's coming my way. Because if it's not enough, I'm getting beat up by all these other smaller kids. Here comes the great big guy, and he's going to smash me where I stand. And he comes up to me. And he says to me, and I'm terrified, terrified, and he says to me, I think I want to be your friend. Uh, well, you're not going to say no, right? Nah, I could do better. Really? I see. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, we should be friends. It's better than the alternative. Who do you fear then? I mean, he's my friend. He's the biggest kid on the playground. You know who I fear? Only him. But even then, he calls me friend. So there's fear that he could get me. But he wants to be my friend. He made his way to me. You think I'm scared of one more kid on that playground? Absolutely not. I'm not scared of anybody else on that playground. I'll talk to whoever I want to talk to. I'll point my little finger in anybody's face, whoever I want to. Why? Because my friend will back me up every single step of the way. You think I'm scared? I ain't scared. And Jesus says, in a few short months, I'll show you who you should fear. And here's what I think this is referring to. There will be this moment to where the disciples will lose their leader. And then twice in the book of Acts, or at the end of John, the end of uh, John, John 20, it says they are locked away inside of a room with the door locked. It says it twice, with the door locked. Because they were fearful of the Jews and all of the leaders of that place. And they're in the room locked, with the door locked, scared, locked. And it says that Jesus comes into the room. Just comes into the room. What's going on, fellas? What are we doing in here? It's not canasta night. What's going on? It says that he breathes on them and he gives them the Holy Spirit. You know, the next thing you see, the continuation of the story into the book of Acts, all of a sudden, these guys are standing out in the middle of the streets and the synagogues preaching and everybody is saying to them, you better shut up. And they're like, we're not shutting up. We're not shutting up. They get beat, they get whipped, they get put in jail, and they keep preaching in the jail. And everywhere they go, they make converts, and they can't be shut up. You want to know how effective that was? We're here, aren't we? We're here now. Do you know why? Because you can't shut it up. 
It just keeps rolling over. Why? Because there's this thing that happens to where when Jesus decides he wants to be friends with the puniest, weakest kid on the playground, that kid's not scared of too much after that. And then they're like, well, maybe we should just kill him. Okay, do it. You know what happens next? Immediately, Christianity just blows apart. Have you ever heard of a planarian? Science class way back a long time ago, planarian. You know what's crazy about a planarian? It's this little organism that you can take it and it's in, you put it in like a little, uh, little dish and you can cut it in half. Do you know what it does? It turns into two planarian. And you take those two and you cut them in half, you know what it does? It turns into two more. So you take it and you cut it in half again. You know what's crazy? You can cut it in half long ways or in half. doesn't matter. It creates another. Christianity has this planarian effect. You know what? Let's kill Jesus. Uh-oh. It's kind of like gremlins when you get them wet, right? <laughs> so you're like, gremlins? You get them wet, what happens? And eh, they multiply. You need to be very, very careful about what you do with Christians. We should persecute the Christians. Okay, only if you want another church. Because this is what happens. Look around. And that's the mindset. That's the mentality. And so Jesus moves from hypocrisy to fears to secrets. And then he stops. And we'll close with this. And he goes to sparrows. Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Sometimes I feel like the way Jesus teaches is so perfect for my ADD. That's what I really think. Because he jumps from topic to topic, and I'm like, perfect continuation. I see the connection. So good. Like, hypocrisy, fear, secrets, sparrows. I'm with you, Jesus. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus, how do I rank compared to sparrows? You're worth a lot of sparrows. You, lots of sparrows. Buckets. Buckets and buckets. You're worth more than buckets of sparrows. Huh. And you really like sparrows? Love sparrows. But you're like buckets of sparrows. If you got buckets of sparrows and you brought them in here and you had them all in a pen and then somebody came through like my kids do and just name everything, I would not be able to identify what sparrows goes with what name. I wouldn't be able to. Maybe you do because you know something about birds, but I don't. I would look at them and be like, that one's brown and gray and this one's brown and gray and this one's brown and gray and I don't know. I don't know. But you know what's cool? You are worth more. You are worth more. That phrase right there in the Greek means I know the difference between the sparrows. For real, Jesus? Of all the people in the world and all the sparrows in the world, you know the difference? Oh, I know the difference. But it also has another, another uh, kind of a second meaning to it. It means I know the difference and I'll carry them both to completion. It means that his watchful eye is never negligent. That he always knows, you know what? This is the way Jared works. This is the way Luke works. This is the way he works. This is the way she works. 
I know them and know them personally. Did you know that blondes have more hair follicles on their head than uh, most people? And redheads have less. And some of you have less than redheads. It's true. Human scalp takes up about 120 square inches up on top of your head. There's about 100,000 hair follicles. Jesus has a running record of you. Some of you are making it easy, by the way, for Jesus. On the, you're making it very easy. But he knows. He has a running record of you. You know what else is funny about that? Is that I can think of so many other things that would be interesting to take note of, but Jesus picked the one that I care least about. How many of you are like, I don't know, how am I doing as far as my hair follicles go? Have you ever asked the doctor? How, do you know how many I've got? Am I winning? How am I compared to other people? Who cares? Like, does it work or not work for you? Or do, who cares? Do you have a hat? You know? It's like one of those things that who cares about that? And Jesus is like, yeah, but, I, yeah, but he knows. I can know how many there are. I know, I know how many are there. But there's a running record of you. The last one is this, that you are not forgotten. You're not forgotten. The sacrifice of the sparrows inside of the Jewish uh, sacrificial system worked this way, that there was one, you always brought two sparrows, and you only brought two sparrows if you were poor. See, if you could afford a goat or a lamb or something like this, you brought that. But if you couldn't avoid, afford that, maybe a pigeon. But if not that, sparrow. And this is the way the vendors did it. You could get two. You could get two for a penny. Or you get five for two pennies. Like that's what kind of deal we're running on sparrows. We got more sparrows than we know what to do with. And so what they would do is they would take the one and they would kill the one sparrow. And with hyssop and I think cedar and in water, they would take the blood and they would put it into, into, the, into the bowl, a clay bowl. And then they would take the other one, the one that was alive, and they would dip that one into that water and that blood and the hyssop and the cedar. And then they would let this one go, thus becoming your prayer, the cry of a broken, sinful man to God. And you let it go. And God says, I know about all the sparrows. Not one falls from the sky without me knowing. We are not forgotten. We are not forgotten. 